Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is uh, your host this afternoon. Uh, we're here to mark the publication of a new book by an old friend, Richard Epstein, um, the provocatively titled Supreme Neglect, uh, How uh, to Revive Constitutional Protection for Private Property. Um, as America's founders and uh, the framers of the Constitution um, repeatedly reminded us, uh, property rights are the foundation of a free society and prosperity. Uh, indeed, uh, they are uh, uh, the foundation of, uh, or they're the guardian of every other right, as has been said. Um, John Locke, the philosophical uh, uh, founder of the American Revolution, um, spoke of lives, liberties, and estates, by which I mean property. Uh, James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, uh, spoke of a right to property, uh, by which he meant uh, that we had a property in our rights. And all of this, of course, was captured in the Fifth Amendment's takings clause of the Constitution. And we lived under a regime of limited government and protection of private property in large measure for 150 years. But the great uh, watershed was, of course, the Progressive Era, in which um, the uh, new the vision of the Progressives was one of uh, policy rather than principle, and it all got instituted in the New Deal. And as a result, property rights became uh, what uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist called in the Dolan decision, like poor relations in the Bill of Rights. Indeed, the demise of property rights was probably captured no better than in a phrase uh, from uh, Antonin Scalia in uh, the um, Lucas case in 1992 in which he said that uh, regulatory takings uh, uh, had become an ad hoc area of the law, uh, even as he was adding another uh, year to the, uh, even as he was adding another year to the string of ad hoc decisions. Well, um, we're going to now listen to uh, Richard Epstein speak about his uh, uh, new book, uh, for about 30 minutes, and then we're going to have uh, Peter Byrne from Georgetown Law Center comment, and Richard will respond briefly, and then we'll open it up to questions from you in the audience, after which we will adjoin, uh, adjourn for lunch upstairs. Uh, Richard Epstein, as I said, is an old friend of the Cato Institute. Indeed, he's an adjunct scholar of Cato. He is at the University of Chicago, where he has been since 1972 as the James Perker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law. He also is the uh, Peter and Kristen uh, Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he uh, has an appointment more recently uh, at New York University Law School. He's the author of countless articles and books. I'll just tick off a few titles of his books, uh, How Progressives uh, Rewrote the Constitution, which we published here at Cato, uh, Skepticism and Freedom, A Modern Case for Classical Liberalism, Cases and Materials on Torts, Principles for a Free Society, Simple Rules for a Complex World, Bargaining with the State, and of course he's most noted for his tome, Takings, Private Property, and the Power of Eminent Domain, which is the definitive work on property rights uh, and has been since it was first published in 1985. This book is a wonderful, uh, wonderfully concise uh, distillation of much of that work. It is uh, mercilessly, uh, mercifully free of footnotes and uh, written so that the layman can understand it, which uh, is something uh, given that it's Richard Epstein writing it. Would you please welcome Richard Epstein? Roger, 
Thank you. It's friends like Roger, right? But anyhow, actually, I did work extremely hard to try to write the book in a level that uh, people could understand it if they were not formally trained in the law. And um, I hope that it pays some dividends in trying to make accessible a set of ideas that I've worked with and toyed with are now for the better part of a legal career, which I'm I don't know, with mixed emotions, I'm happy to say, I suppose, that it's now my 40th year of being a law professor, and so it's been a long time having worked on this stuff, and maybe one of these days I'll actually get it right, I suppose, is what I should think about it. But the question is, how then does one start to approach property law and the Constitution? And there are two ways in which one can do this. The way in which it is commonly done in the Supreme Court is essentially to treat every question as one of de novo constitutional interpretation and to try to distance yourself in whatever way possible from the sort of the heritage of common law and I might say in this case Roman law rules which have long been used to organize property discussions amongst individuals. And the way in which I approach the subject is really quite different. I started out as a private lawyer. I started out as a Roman lawyer. I still teach you all of these areas. And my view has always been the extent to which you can carry over whatever it is that you learn about private relationships amongst individuals to the law of the Constitution. Now, in order to show, I think, the importance of this particular distinction, it's useful to sort of go down a kind of us-v-them sort of approach. What I'd like to do, in effect, is to take four or five issues, um, some of them attitudinal, some of them doctrinal, and show the difference between the approach that I take in this book and the sort of received and conventional wisdom, which is, in fact, embodied in most of the Supreme Court decisions. And one way in which you could sort of measure the stakes of this is to kind of do a little bit of simple multiplication. What I like to say when you teach doctrine is take one position compared to another and see the extent to which they are property protected. And so if you assume that the Supreme Court doctrine for the sake of convenience is a one on every one of these scales, then you have to figure out what the level of protection is as you start going through the various points that I'm talking about. And in each case, it turns out that they're at least double protective relative to the Supreme Court doctrine. Well, if you take two to the fifth, it's a fairly large number. So you can now say that my view of property rights is 35 or 32-fold more protective than is the United States Supreme Court. Now, the numbers are to some extent facetious, but the underlying point here, I think, is extremely important. The way in which common law and, to some extent, constitutional judges work when they analyze particular questions is they always start with a particular question in isolation and decide it in the direction that they think is correct or in, and trying to avoid what is incorrect. Almost never do they try to examine the synergistic effects of making a decision in one point and how it ties up with the way in which people organize other points. Uh, if you're trying to do this as a systematic analyst, however, you don't want to simply treat them one case at a time, one point at a time. You want to look at the thing holistically to see the way in which the various doctrines interact. Once you concentrate on the interaction, then these kinds of multiplic multiplicative effects are extremely important in the way in which the entire system is put together. And so in the kind of more dramatic way, Roger hinted at what the result is. In 1985, when I wrote my property book, uh, Takings, it came to me almost as an afterthought, having gone through the hard work of the demonstration. Oh, yes, of course, the entire New Deal is unconstitutional. And I thought since the uh, foundations were rigorous, the conclusion would be completely non-controversial. The response that I got in some of the reviews, however, indicated to me that I had misread my audience at the time. Uh, they were quite ferocious in the way in which they denounced me as a flat-earth enthusiast and a whole variety of other kinds of not-so-kind words. But I still stick to that basic kind of principle. And what I want to do today is to sort of 
be do this point counterpoint situation to show you the way in which these things work. And the first thing, of course, is in fact one of attitude, how it is that you start to look at a doctrine. And, and there is a kind of a Freudian view of constitutionalism in which the standard view of judicial review is going to be destiny. It's going to tell you exactly how you're going to come out on particular cases. And if you start with the sort of the classical system in which dominium and the Roman law and private property and the English law were the foundation of all other institutions, what happens is when you start to do this by way of constitutional examination, the foundational nature of the underlying right is something that is going to give rise to a fairly high measure of constitutional protection. And the moment you start thinking about a fairly high measure of constitutional protection, you're going to be sort of searching for a way to make sure that as much of the private institution as you can is going to be preserved in the way in which you analyze the government structures. This then in turn translates itself into a standard of relatively strict scrutiny with respect to various forms of legislation, which on any particular point are going to impinge upon or otherwise alter the distribution of rights as these things are found at common law. This does not mean to be sure that there's no deviation whatsoever that can take place. Indeed, the mere fact that we say that private property may be taken upon payment of just compensation for public use is, in fact, a significant deviation from the common law rules, which were much more circumspect in the ability of private individuals to force exchanges. And in fact, the modern view, or at least the view that I take of the subject, is it's precisely in this expanded view of forced exchanges that one finds the secret to additional government power. It gives the state enough power to operate all of its essential facilities without giving it enough power to trample the rights of the citizens whom it's supposed to protect. So starting in effect with this particular view, your attitude is one of quizzical suspicion of any government initiative, which translates into a standard of either intermediate scrutiny on the one hand or strict scrutiny on the other. The differences between those two actually matter from time to time in various cases, but relative to the opposition, those differences are small, and so I'm going to put them to one side. If you start looking in effect at the attitude that is taken towards private property in the modern Supreme Court, it has certainly been very heavily shaped by the institutions, interpretations, and traditions in the progressive movement that was basically the dominant intellectual movement in the United States between about 1900 and 1932. And for these people, private property, like separation of powers and limited government, were all magic nuisances. And the reason they were nuisances is that people did not need a bulwark and a protection against what large governments did. What they had to do was to understand that these particular rights weren't particularly important. What really mattered was administrative expertise, which was put into the hands of a select group of public officials who could only work their magic, acting, of course, always in good faith, to the extent that they were not going to be blocked by any individual claim of a property right. And so under these circumstances, if you really start with the good government progressive tradition, property rights become a hindrance. And so the attitude that you take to them goes in exactly the opposite direction. Now, in effect, you have to downplay their importance in order to allow the collective to as it were, to prevail over selfish interests, and therefore the standard of judicial review that you have to engage in is going to be much lower. 
and that translates in constitutional terms into a system of the very misnamed rational basis test. And basically, the way I like to put the rational basis standard is that if you can say with a straight case that 2 plus 2 equals 5, then the Supreme Court with a straight face can say reasonable people can differ on how it is that you add things up, and so therefore under these circumstances, we're prepared to allow the statute to survive. And so what you do is, in effect, instead of having the very tough scrutiny that the traditional theory of private property would want, what you do is you now have a very lax standard of review, and these things then determine just about everything else that happens. What is the first thing that it determines? Well, I think the easiest way to say that is the attitude that you take towards constitutional interpretation is shaped by the standard of review. In the course of this book, what I do is to develop what I think to be two norms of interpretation of any kind of constitutional protection, which have to be implemented if you're going to get beyond the silliest forms of textualism on the one hand and not go into the situation where an evolving constitution allows you to make black white and white black simply because of a changing social conditions. And these are what I sometimes like to call the principles. One of them is the anti-circumvention principle, and the other is the justification principle. And what do you mean by this? Well, if you're going to start with a particular system which says that we're going to protect various kinds of rights, in this case private property against confiscation, what you have to understand is that the folks on the other side of the situation will, if frustrated in the direct attack on the institution that is constitutionally protected, try to find some indirect means to subvert and to undermine so if you want to think about the way, for example, in which a government which doesn't like freedom of speech would work, it'd say, of course you're free to speech, but you have to get permits from us which we will never turn out to issue. Of course you're free to speech, but you must pay a tax which is larger than the fellow has to pay on the opposite side. And what you can do is find all sorts of techniques that you put which will essentially make the exercise of the right sufficiently costly that nobody will be able to exercise it at all. And this, of course, is not something that you have to do in order to protect the individual against the government. It's also something that the government has to do in a variety of ways to protect itself against individual abuse. I don't know how many of you teach taxation, a field in which I started, but when I started as a tax lawyer, the first thing you learn is that every time somebody found a way to... Um, beat the taxes, the government would have to pass some kind of protective legislation, and then after a while they would beat it again, and finally what you had to put in a tax code was a general anti-circumvention provision so as to make sure that if you wanted to have a corporate tax, it couldn't be defeated by stock dividends and so forth. And so this cat and mouse game gets played all the time, and to the extent that you have a distrust of taxpayers, you need tough, tough rules. To the extent that you have a distrust of government, you need them as well. And this, therefore, means that you will not allow the term taking to be read so narrowly as to permit the government to achieve all that it wants by using techniques that are slightly collateral. And I'll try to give you a couple of explanations as we go further into the thing as to how this principle works out. Now, one of the things about this anti-circumvention principle is it takes the words or phrase taking a private property and it will tend to enlarge it so as to increase the sphere of government protection. But at the same time, one of the reasons why constitutional law is so difficult is that the most important conceptions in many cases in constitutional law are nowhere to be found in the text. And if you go back, for example, and look at the 19th century treatises on the subject, most of them, in effect, are surround something known as the police powers reserved to the states. And it turns out that the constitutional law is the question in which individual liberties prevent the exercise of certain of the government's police powers. Well, where does the police power come in? 
And I think the answer to this question logically is as follows. Suppose it turns out that uh, the government does decide that it wants to take your property. Is there any way in which you could justify that which is a prima facie wrong? And the answer to that question is the same as it is in private law. Yes, if you think carefully on how this may happen. So in a private situation, I may be able to take a rock out of your hand if you're about to hit me over the head with it. And so when you start dealing with the public situation, if there is a situation where one individual is about to engage in a common law nuisance against his neighbor, you have exactly the same kind of quid pro quo. You can enjoin that activity, and you don't have to pay compensation for the loss in value associated with the use. It would be a very odd world indeed if every time you wanted to shut down a polluter, you had to compensate him for the loss of the right to pollute under these circumstances, because you know how much pollution you would get as people would constantly gin up ways to get money by creating homes with respect to other individuals. And there's nothing about the Constitution which requires you to go into these absurdities because the basic image that we have with respect to the fundamental right also carries over with respect to the defenses that the government has, which is namely figure out the way in which these situations play out as between two private individuals and then put the state in the role of one of these individuals and give it those rights that it has against anybody else. So if a private individual can enjoin a nuisance, then a state acting as its agent can enjoin that kind of nuisance as well. So what happens is these two principles then come to play a very important role in the way in which you start to work doctrine. And when you then apply them to the various kinds of things that I'm going to talk about now, you can start to see the way in which the system, the modern system, starts to break down. So let's begin first with just a very simple question of definition. What do we mean by property? Well, as I said, I'm a good Roman lawyer, and the definition that starts in Roman law and is carried over into English law and is sometimes but not always used in constitutional law says that the owner of property, in this instance land, is somebody who has the exclusive right to the possession, use, and disposition of the property at hand. So that this trinity of incidents of rights with respect to a given parcel is what, in fact, marks the system of property. And the reason why this definition is so compelling is the moment you start to remove one bundle from that right, you then have to ask the question, where is that right going to go, and how valuable will be the residual elements of the bundle? And to give you, in effect, the most extreme version of it, suppose you were silly enough to say that the right to property is only the right to exclude, and to take that literally. Well, the first difficulty you have is I may have the right to exclude everybody else from the property, but do I have the right to enter the property myself? And if you're really quite literal on this particular point, the answer to that question would be no. After all, you could keep others off. That doesn't mean that you could get on. Now, nobody in his right mind would ever associate the ordinary use of property as saying that exclusion means no right to enter. So now we concede the right to enter. Well, what are you supposed to do with the property when you get there? And one definition is to say, well, you don't have the right to use it, so you could just sit there idly and twiddle your thumbs. Or you may be able to use some uses, but not all. And the moment you start cutting back on these use rights, what happens is the value of the institution is, in fact, going to be eliminated because the Cato Institute could get me in, but they could be banned from allowing an audience to hear any of the heretical things that I'm about to say. So you add use, and then, of course, you add disposition, and precisely because unless you have a right to disposition with respect to property, the gains from cooperation with respect to the utilization of real estate will be effectively thwarted. Every single common law jurisdiction of which I'm aware, every single civil law jurisdiction of which I'm aware, treats these three things as an indisputable trinity because the elimination of any one of the elements renders the values associated with the other two being far, far weaker. 
Come to the United States Constitution. The moment you decide to give strong protection to use rights and to disposition rights, the ability to run the progressive program is going to be sharply compromised. And so what happens is property rights now become demoted, and they become just the right to exclude, and everything with respect to use and disposition over a very broad range will in fact be subject to government veto. Nobody will go so far as to say, oh, ho, you can't use it at all and you can't dispose of it at all. But the question is, how far will you back down on that? And the modern position is not very far, and they give you this rather woolly notion of what counts as an economically viable use, and it turns out that nobody can give an accurate definition of what that is because every restriction will reduce the value of property above and beyond what it was previous, and how many of these reductions can you do before you have to compensate is a problem which the Supreme Court will not answer because it has no conceptual answer, so it resorts typically to the kinds of work that you always resort to when you don't have a theory. It says it's an ad hoc judgment based upon the facts and circumstances of particular cases, which is exactly the inquiry you're trying to answer. And what they do is they take the question and they treat it as though an answer instead of getting an answer to the question in some coherent fashion. So the difference between these two definitions turns out to be utterly enormous. To give you an idea of essentially how far it goes, under current Supreme Court law, generally speaking through a system of zoning, which of course leaves you in possession but restricts the lives of use and maybe even in some cases the rights of disposition, for example, by way of subdivision and so forth, it is routinely the situation that you will sustain value reductions which go up to the 80, sometimes even the 90 percent level. And the question you then have to ask, why is this a great social achievement? Well, one of the things that you then try to do, at least in the modern Supreme Court, is to invoke a very broad definition of externality, which is the police power half of the situation, which is exactly the opposite side of the situation that we were talking about here, namely on the taking side, so that you say to yourself, well, the reason that we have to have these very sharp restrictions on use is that it is simply archaic and obscene to think that the only kinds of externalities that you have to protect again are those which are associated with common law nuisances like filth. What you have to do is to think about all of the aesthetic and all of the industrial development aspects that take place and the central planning issues of one kind or another, and when you put all those things into the mix, it is hopelessly archaic to use a narrow common law definition to define what the rights of government are going to be. So they give, in effect, a very broad definition of the police power, which goes along with a very narrow definition of the property rights. And the view of the subject that I take is exactly the opposite. You have a fairly strong and robust definition of the property rights, and you have a relatively narrow definition of the police power. And the question is, why is it that the old-fashioned version of this is preferable to the new one, is I think one has to, be, has to ask. And the first thing that one has to do is to attack, or at least to examine closely, the next notion of externality to see that you're making this thing work correctly. In a private law context, generally the reason why we have a strong nuisance law with respect to various kinds of things on pollution and so forth is we have a pretty strong intuition, not in all cases but in most, that the harm that pollution causes to one neighbor is greater than the gain that you get on the other side. So if you're trying to figure out how it is that you would just... Uh, interactions at the boundary line so as to maximize the value of both parcels, a kind of mutual restriction on various kinds of pollution activities are generally going to create the right answer. 
It's not always the right answer. And so what the common law has done and ex- exercises through various kinds of plan unit developments is if two neighbors get together and they either want to increase the scope of nuisances or to restrict the kinds of activities that are otherwise done, what you do is you get a set of voluntary covenants that can be entered into that will bind the immediate users and subsequent takers. So by the time you put the nuisance rules together with the contract rules, that's the right of this position again, you can get yourself fairly smart to the sort of optimal distribution. So what is it that's missing from this analysis? Well, if you were to take the conventional account of the subject, the problem of this analysis is that it misses some of the negative externalities to people who do not participate either in the direct activities or in the systems of covenants and easements that are created. And the thing is, you're supposed to take these into account. And that argument is right, but it's only half right. One of the common features about property law, which is widely neglected, is that any voluntary transaction between two individuals will normally create not only negative externalities by people who are disappointed, but it will also create positive externalities by the people who think that they can advantage themselves from the way in which particular things happen to take place. So, for example, if you want to go to the most famous of the early nuisance cases or the zoning cases, which sets the law essentially to this present day, it's a pre-1937 case, Roger. It's, you know, Euclid against Ambler, one of the worst. And what they do is they say, well, here's what's going on. We've got ourselves a restriction in the way in which you could use a coherent plot of land. And it's important that it's a coherent plot of land because that means that if you subdivide it, you don't have to worry about boundary crossing issues. You could handle that by the system of covenants when you create the subdeeds. And what we do is we're going to tell you, you can't use it in a unified fashion. You have to smash it up into three separate zones, which will create conflicts amongst them. And when you do this little maneuver, what you do is you manage to reduce the value of the parcel to the owner by about three-fourths of its value, in that case around $600,000. The right question to then ask is, where's the $600,000 worth of gain on the externality side, which would justify the $600,000 losses in the particular case? Well, you can't do it in the traditional nuisance situations, because the kind of stuff that you were going to put up would be the sort of thing that nobody could complain of under a common law rule. So what you have to do is to find what I call soft externalities. The neighborhood character will be changed if you allow this thing to go in that fashion, and some people won't like it. The difficulty with respect to the soft externality analysis is it only takes the externalities in one direction. It never takes them in both. It may well be that the development of this particular plot will, in fact, create job opportunities for some of the neighbors and will therefore increase the value of some of the housing and some of the other businesses that are located there. If you run as the Supreme Court wants to do, look only at the bad consequences associated with property. Never look at the good consequences associated with its development. You've got a biased sample of externalities. You will always come out with the wrong answer. And again, suppose it turns out in this particular case that the sum of the externalities is indeed negative, and the neighbors actually are upset about this. And remember, all you're doing is building a plant. You're not creating anything like a common law nuisance that you can enjoin. You still have, in fact the injunctive relief method, you can stop this upon the payment of compensation by going through the use of the eminent domain power so as to make this thing into a visual public park of one sort or another. What is characteristic of all of these cases is that when the option comes forward to people to actually put cash on the barrelhead in order to control the soft externalities, you can never get a majority of taxpayers who are remotely willing to do this. What happens is the political constitution that you have goes in exactly the wrong direction. 
What it says in all particular cases is that cheap talk really matters. If you go up there and announce and emote and yell and scream about how terrible it is that somebody's going to put a house on the dune, the fact that the guy is building an award-winning house that wins architectural prizes really doesn't matter because the architectural committee is not the neighbor and it's the neighbors who turn out to be indignant. And the number of cases that I have worked in over the years where essentially the eminent domain law encourages people to posture, scream, and yell and to make all sorts of exaggerated claim is, in fact, one of the really depressing features about the modern law. What it does by allowing people to take without paying so long as they let themselves get really upset is it encourages the kind of asocial, phony, deliberative sort of behavior that anybody who's ever attended a zoning hearing will know what this is about. And it's truly a shameful thing because one of the points that one wants to stress over and over again, a system of strong property rights coupled with the condemnation option at fair value, a point I'll get to in a second, is in fact a way to encourage responsible deliberation. If, in fact, you give people the opportunity to steal by majority vote, then, in effect, they will basically encourage each other to do just that so the discourse will follow the doctrine and, in fact, will be not productive but completely counterproductive. I think it's extremely important to remember this because one of the constant justifications for a modern planning system is that it's supposed to lead you to a world of deliberative democracy. What it does, in effect, is it actually undermines the prospect of a decent form of deliberation because it allows a minority coalition to squash the minority interest if they could get votes when they never have to pay for the harms that they cause. So this interplay between the broad property definition and the narrow police power definition and the reverse is, in fact, a huge difference in the structure of modern property law, and it's one in which I think the Supreme Court analysis is naive and mistaken. Why is it mistaken? Well, let me give one other explanation, I think, which kind of puts the point into, I think, pretty good perspective. One of the questions that modern doctrine faces is why is a restriction on land use not a taking of a property interest, namely a restrictive covenant on land use? And the Supreme Court, in one of Justice Brennan's worst decisions, a case called Penn Central against um, the city of New York, came up with the brilliant argument that a restrictive covenant was no different from a loss in value attributable to competition by a neighbor. And so what happens is a paradigmatic taking under the private law now becomes treated like a competitive industry. Injury. What is, makes this point so extraordinary is that the logic of competitive injuries, the Roman logic of damn them obscure and uria, harm without legal injury, was developed precisely because it was understood that if you allow individuals who suffer no physical abuse and no defamation to protest what is going on, all forms of economic progress will end because competition always leaves disappointed competitors and you cannot allow a disappointed competitor to make himself into a victim of a tort. On the other hand, when you start having people who say, I'm going to get the way I want to do it by selling is by putting a, you into a jail so that you can't come out and be competitive with me, that is, restrict your access, now Justice Brennan is telling us that the restriction and the competition are the same thing. What's wrong with this is that competition is always a positive-sum game. But on the other hand, these restrictive covenants are always negative-sum games. So it's not just a question of getting the degrees right and wrong on the extent of value changes. He's got the sign wrong. He's thinking something is good when it's bad and something's bad when it's good. And when you start to make sign mistakes and start marching your armies off in the wrong direction, it turns out that you will always come up with mistakes. Now, there are two other elements of contrast that I'm going to talk about, and I'll try to be very brief about these, because I think what they do is they just reinforce the last of the elements I'm talking about. 
One of them applies to the situations with respect to takings by way of occupation of land, and that's the question of how much money you have to pay. If you go back and you read Blackstone's commentaries, he actually got it right. What he said, in effect, is when you take property from a landowner, you have to compensate him for all damages that come in consequence of the taking in question. And that is not just simply the value of the land. It includes the subjective value associated with the land and all the dislocation and hell that the government's going to impose upon you, all of which are real social costs. Once you get into the progressive era, what happens is the thought that you have to pay full compensation to people who are injured, as opposed to simply the value of the property taken, means that you could run full of fewer bulldozers through New York City at the height of the Robert Moses era and so forth. And so what happens is the Supreme Court, Justice Frankfurt is one of the main mistake, one of the misguided figures in this particular case, always trying to understate the level of compensation. Why is this a terrible thing? Because the moment you understate the level of compensation, you're now giving the government the option to purchase it below market value, and not only that, it below actual loss value. And the moment you give that kind of option, which can be exercised under the public use doctrine virtually at will, what it means is you're going to get systematic overcompensation, overcondemnation. People will take things which are more valuable in private hands because they don't get the right signals. In a private marketplace, if somebody were to constantly require sales at the wrong prices, everybody would immediately recognize the distortion. But in the absence of a willing seller and a willing buyer, the standard has to be to impose upon the party who coerces all of the obligations that it would have to satisfy if this were a willing transaction. And the differences in numbers here can be quite considerable, be 25, 30, 40 percent of the total value, and that means that you get wild overcompensation. And the last feature, which is perhaps not the most important feature in this, but is certainly the most dramatic, is what we think about our friend, the doctrine of public use. For those of us who come in the libertarian tradition like myself, a public use means one thing for sure, one thing kind of, and one thing absolutely not. The thing that it means for sure is that when you take the property, it in fact can be used by the public, which means either by the government for an official facility, by the public under a system of access, whether free or paid. Um, and it doesn't have to be owned by the public. God forbid that the takings clause should say if you want to condemn land for the railroad, it has to be Amtrak that you're condemning it for. You're allowed to try to convey it out to a private party who opens itself up to the, the rest of the world on the common carrier basis. And, you know, that makes perfectly good sense and is relatively non-controversial. The difficulties in this particular area of occupation are best addressed by getting the compensation formulas right. Uh, the very difficult case in which the Supreme Court, I think, came out with the right answer, extremely narrowly understood, is there are certain physical situations of genuine bilateral monopoly, such that if you don't allow the condemnation power to be used, you will have a person whose resources are a trivial element of the contribution to the whole being able to extract the entire amount of the gain. And the case that was given in the Supreme Court in 1905 when they understood this thing a little bit better is I've got my ore on the top of the mountain. You've got your tracks over there. I have to run a tramway over your stubble ground in order to be able to get it. It's a trivial injury. I pay you two, three times the value of the loss, and I can do this in order to obviate the holdout problem. So that essentially the bilateral monopoly problem, which classical liberals acknowledge and try to deal with necessity defenses, Hardline libertarians tend to be a bit more dubious about it, was always in the Supreme Court lexicon for at least 150 years.
But what was not in the Supreme Court lexicon was Kela. And this is the situation where, in effect, far from having a holdout problem, the government had no idea of what it wanted to do with the land when it had taken it. And if I'm not mistaken, Chip, it's still vacant, right? Because these ignoramuses have never been able to figure out why they wanted to spend public monies to take land that nobody could use or wanted to use. And there was huge subjective value with respect to the owner, the exact opposite of these cases. And one of the really sad features of supreme neglect, when we actually put this, the Cato brief, in fact, myself, and I think you signed it, right? And Mark Muller. What we did is we quoted the full passage and photo the opposition and said, you don't even have to agree with these radicals from the Institute for Justice. You can agree with the moderates from the Cato Institute and recognize that this case is the mirror opposite of the cases on which you rely. And sure enough, what Justice Stevens did is relied on the opinion, sanitized it of all the language, which made it very clear how narrow the exception was, and treated the two cases are identical. And what happens again is that it ties in with the basic theme. If you use the definitions of public use that I've advocated, it turns out you keep the government on a relatively tight leash. You don't even get blight cases because for those, what you do is you enjoin the blight instead of condemning the land. And therefore, what happens is it's a limited government. If you, on the other hand, switch around to the modern definitions, you now have to deal with a modern version of Justice, Chief Justice Marshall's statement in McCullough and Maryland. Namely, the proposition is the power to designate is the power to destroy. And what I mean by that is the ability to decide that your land is going to be taken and your land is not becomes an intensely political decision which cannot be resolved in a principled fashion, which means, again, you unleash all of the dangers associated with coalition because you give these government figures too much to do. And just to make it worse, and I'll end on this particular note, when you then want to match that with this huge system of public subsidies for urban renewal, what you do is you get the recipe for disaster in Kilo. The only reason why that case became so misshapen is that the state gave the city of New London huge amounts of money, and basically its solemn duty was to dissipate the funds before they could be returned to the state. So they elaborate. They had these huge ambitions, erected this elaborate infrastructure, and then found that they had nothing to put on top of it. And Kilo is an extreme version of incompetence with respect to public officials. But the basic dynamic remains there. If you believe in a system of limited government, what you have to do is to control discretion. And the only way you will control discretion is to go back to the constellation of attitudes and doctrines that I try to defend in supreme neglect. Thank you. Well, thank you, Richard. And now for something completely different. Um, we're going to hear from uh, Professor Peter Byrne, um, whom um, Richard and I have both had the pleasure of, of debating in times past. Um, Peter um, is a professor of law at uh, Georgetown Law Center, um, which he uh, joined in uh, 1985. He is a graduate of Northwestern and uh, the University of Virginia Law School. Um, he uh, clerked right after law school with uh, Judge Frank Coffin of the U.S. Um, uh, District Court, I believe, and then um, uh, with uh, Justice Lewis Powell on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he teaches property, land use, constitutional law, higher education law and policy, and among his many, many publications, um, three have stood out uh, to my mind. One, um, Property and Environment, Thoughts on an Evolving Relationship in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, 
And then, more interestingly, an essay called Green Property uh, in Constitutional Commentary, and another essay called Ten Arguments for the Abolition of Regulatory Takings Doctrine. So would you please welcome Peter Byrne. Only ten. Thank you, Roger. <clears throat> and I appreciate very much uh, that uh, Cato uh, organizes these events with the people of differing views so that uh, the, view, the issues will be fleshed out uh, more fully than they can if everybody agrees. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to come and talk in part because I admire Richard Epstein uh, so much. He, in a 25-minute talk, is able to put in about two hours' worth of, uh, of data and uh, I, in my 15 minutes, will be lucky if I get five minutes of, uh, of real substance into it, but I'll do my best. Uh, this book is, uh, is, uh, is a lovely book. It is a long meditated uh, theory uh, about the nature of property rights and their relationship uh, to the Constitution um, that reflects a lot of work that's been done over time. And, it, and it, it, Richard is... Uh, one of the things he said he wanted to do was to argue for property rights not as a defense of self-interested greed, but as a, a, a valuable tool uh, for individual liberty and and uh, and social cooperation and productive activity. And certainly, uh, it, it it is that. And and uh, uh, he also deals forthrightly with some of the more difficult issues of our time, such as environmental land use regulation, historic preservation. He doesn't. He really doesn't try to duck anything, but takes them on. And I. I think that that makes it a terrific contribution, and I hope uh, I hope everybody here uh, will read it. I understand the book to be uh, a deeply normative account uh, of an ideal legal system. Uh, I don't think it really purports to describe the legal system that we live live under. Uh, indeed, a lot of uh, the book and his comments here are a lament as to how far uh, we are. Uh, from from the system that uh, that he uh, that he argues for, uh, and indeed, since uh, Professor Epstein published his book Takings in 1985, we've been through a very long legal uh, debate struggle uh, over the meaning of the Takings Clause and a political debate about it. And the results of it, I think, can't be terribly encouraging to. Uh, libertarians or property rights advocates. Uh, so two of the cases that Richard didn't mention that are more recent, uh, in the Lingle case, uh, the Supreme Court unanimously reaffirmed the idea that courts should defer to legislative judgments about the wisdom of uh, regulations uh, of property. Uh, and in the Tahoe Sierra case, uh, just two years before that, the court strongly reinforced the distinction between uh, takings as a matter of physical appropriation uh, and takings as a matter of regulation of use in exactly the way that Professor Epstein opposes. Uh, and um, we're still engaged. And I think to a large extent the issue of regulatory takings in the Supreme Court is kind is quiet now. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, path-breaking legislation or litigation uh, on the horizon. Um, where we are engaged is in a, a political struggle, a place where in general Professor Epstein doesn't like to be. Um, uh, at the state levels where there are arguments being put forth for increased compensation uh, for the owners of property from regulatory use. Uh, but even that seems to have stalled to some extent, and the main success uh, in the state of Oregon has been reversed uh, uh, by a new statute that's more deferential. Admittedly, the outcry against Kilo is rather on the other side, um, and that is a genuine phenomenon 
Um, but it doesn't go, I think, to the heart of <coughs> of Professor Epstein's um, thinking. So I'll put it to us to the side for now. We can go into Kilo uh, during the Q and A if you wish. Uh, but I want to try to uh, engage with uh, this uh, work uh, on the theoretical level uh, that he, it's written on, um, and uh, I think uh, I think it's. Uh, well, it's an elegant principle. It's not an attractive principle that he that he presents, um, and it, it's not that I think, or really, I think any anybody in the legal academy thinks that our legal system of private property rights uh, is not a great cultural inheritance or a valuable tool for organizing a modern market economy or enhancing uh, uh, individual liberty. But the approach that he has, it seems to me, confuses the virtues of a system of private property as such uh, with uh, a commitment to uh, sort of rigidly defining the details of those entitlements, uh, even when they're judged by a, a contemporary legislature not to, be, not to be in the public interest. And the use of the Constitution to prioritize common law rules uh, over uh, legislative changes as a way to uh, frustrate uh, uh, current uh, majority. This, of course, creates uh, a rule by judges, uh, most of whom are found wanting, but here aided by uh, philosophers uh, who want to decide public issues on questions of principle rather than politics uh, or, or consent. Uh, so there are three elements, I think, in the way Professor Epstein uh, makes his argument. One, he wants to equate uh, a taking with any uh, new uh, legal restriction uh, on a landowner's right to use property as being on the same level as an action by a neighbor uh, acting to disregard the rights uh, that the law creates uh, against that neighbor. Uh, secondly, he wants to uh, require compensation whenever that taking, uh, broadly defined, can't be justified uh, as protecting uh, uh, the public against a harm that would count as a common law nuisance, something that the that the, a neighbor could bring if, if they had the resources. If if it was, uh, and why take this view? Well, as he's at the end of his talk, he said it very straightforwardly. Although it's hardly hidden in the book, um, he believes that legislative discretion uh, inevitably leads to tyranny, uh, because a power not governed by strict principles will be abused. Uh, by parties who take control of the political process to extract rents or, or, or exploit, uh, exploit the poor. Now, uh, to, to elevate that into a constitutional principle uh, is difficult in the sense that it doesn't really know accepted notions of in constitutional interpretation can make the takings clause stand for all that. Um, uh, whether you focus on the, on the, uh, the language of, of the takings clause or the what we know of the events surrounding its, its adoption, uh, it, it does, you can't make a good legal argument that that's what our Constitution says. But let's, let's pass that by because that's not the thrust of it. The thrust is here's the right way to think about it. This is how we should think about it, and let's think about it that way. Um, so on that basis, I have three, three objections. Um, one is I find that, uh, that Professor Epstein is deeply but inconsistently pessimistic about self-government. Um, so all legislative discretion not bounded by strict incentives result in exploitation. Uh, and of course this is a concern, and many of our constitutional processes uh, and a lot of our political struggles are addressed to concerns about this. 
But such a broad disparagement of government by the people, as it were, uh, rejects the very substantial role that democratic politics uh, play in the moral case for government. And uh, through the consent, uh, the ongoing consent of people to their institutions, including to the institution of property, uh, adaptation to new uh, circumstances, uh, and the breadth of interests that can be addressed uh, through the legislative process. So, for example, uh, there are uh, good arguments for wealth redistribution uh, to alleviate suffering and maintain senses of fairness uh, among, um, in a society in which many people have little or no property. This is not to say that, they, that this is a straightforward, easy thing that should prevail in any particular circumstance, but there are a range of arguments that he would take off the table uh, even uh, when starting. And it's hard to know how we ever got a system of property uh, without understanding a sense that for most people, property, private property makes sense. Uh, and that we do, in fact, have an ongoing commitment to, to it. Um, okay, the second point I would mention is the really insupportable notion that government stands in the same position when it changes the dimensions of property rights through legal processes, as does a private person who invades someone's property rights. Uh, when the government uh, makes law, it is not necessarily and not specifically trading on its own account, but it is changing the rules for all. It is, in fact, it, this is not eminent domain, but in terms of regulation, uh, which is its role. And it doesn't matter whether this is done in principle, it doesn't matter in principle whether it's done by common law adjudication uh, or by statutory change. Uh, many com common law rules that Professor Epstein sees as embodying sort of timeless virtues, it seems to me, represent rather uh, certainly an, an intellectual inheritance and a need for and a desire for coherence, but also an adaptation to the needs of the time, uh, a acknowledgement of the level of social organization of the other institutions of government, what they can do, what they can't do, their legal culture and the limits, uh, the limits uh, of litigation. Legislation protects property rights as much as it diminishes them, um, and uh, uh, the, uh, many of the regulations that, uh, that he describes, such as zoning regulations, are viewed by most people as protections of property rights, protections for the investment that they have in their homes uh, against, uh, against inconsistent development or development that will undermine the value of the community as a whole. It's not to say that they're necessarily right in that in every case or in any particular case, but that's what they think. That's what that's what is, I think it is based on. The third, um, uh, a point he makes. Uh, well, he made pretty much here today. He makes it more more extensively in the book. The idea that um, that environmental protection would be furthered by a sound price system, whereby the government must pay for environmental protections at least above the level of a common law nuisance, uh, such as when it prohibits development of a wetland. Uh, or, uh, or um, a habitat uh, for an endangered species. Uh, he claims that the uh, government will do the right amount of regulation when it has to pay for the benefits because then it will weigh uh, the, the, the value of the benefit against alternative uses of the property and the costs involved in pro prohibiting particular use. But I think this argument really doesn't work very well. In reality, the benefits from most forms of environmental protection are extremely widespread and long-term in their realization and often have a non-monetary uh, character. 
so at the point of the prohibition of some use, the government simply doesn't have the money, and the members of the public do not necessarily feel immediately richer, uh, by which cash can be raised. So that by focusing on the need for the government to pay at the point of regulation creates strong disincentives against regulation uh, that generally cannot be overcome uh, and <clears throat> uh, tilts the uh, tilts the uh, the entire process uh, against regulation. I'm, I'm sure that, in some sense, is the point. Uh, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work to say that it's going to lead to uh, more wholesome incentives for weighing costs and benefits. It simply creates insuperable insuperable costs. Um, uh, it's also the case that we don't necessarily want to insure property owners against uh, investment uh, without regard to future regulatory needs. Uh, by ensuring them that way, we create perverse incentives for them uh, to uh, indeed engage in behavior that is likely to become prohibited because it creates uh, uh, opportunities for compensation or at least to threaten to do so. Uh, but it also doesn't keeps them from nimbly adjusting their portfolio of investments to try to take account of evolving uh, public policy. And finally, there's the cost of administering such a system. Uh, there have been attempts, there was an attempt in England in the 1920s and 30s to administer a system whereby they would tax all the benefits that came from regulation and then try to use the money to compensate uh, property owners, uh, but it quickly fell down in part because of the difficulty of assessing what the increases, what, 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 these, uh, what these numbers were. What were the increase in the value of, 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 pro of other properties? What was the decrease in value of the property here? And to some extent, the, these things are not simple and they become subjects of intense litigation that are, that are very costly. The number thrown around, for example, for the Ambler Realty Company come from their complaint uh, in the case. It's not an adjudicated number. Um, so, so, in conclusion, uh, while the, uh, many of the judgments that Professor Epstein makes on particular legal doctrines uh, or judgments about particular government initiatives uh, uh, really make sense uh, even to me, <laughs> and uh, uh, he makes a very strong case uh, an intellectually uh, elegant case for the view of prioritizing property rights over legislation, uh, which is really the nub of it. Um, uh, it seems to me that uh, it's not the world that we actually live in, uh, and, I'm ha and I, it is not a world that I particularly want to live in. So thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. And we're going to now hear for just a few minutes from Richard in response, and we'll open it up to all of you. Okay. Um, uh, thank you so much, Peter, for the kind words and so forth and for the areas of agreement. It's nice to see that at least there's some movement. Uh, the areas of disagreement, however, still remain fairly large, and let me see if I can explain why it is that I, I think that most of the criticisms misfire. Uh, uh, the first of the points is that this book is indeed a normative book. But it is not a utopian book. Uh, the kinds of doctrines that I am pushing for with respect to property are, in fact, in place right now in the United States Supreme 
Supreme Court created by judges out of identical materials. If you were to look at the rules, for example, governing free speech, these are rules which are perfectly classical, liberal in their origins, except for a few things like the bad finance cases, McCain, Feingold, and so forth. What they do is they give broad definitions of the right. Uh, They allow you to protect the use and the threat of force. They allow you to protect against various kinds of misrepresentations and frauds, and they allow you to protect against monopoly. Perfect situation. Same thing is true if you take the dormant commerce clause. You can fashion these things, and the real difference is in those cases the Supreme Court thinks it knows why it likes the rights. It likes free speech because of the way in which it promotes political participation. And oddly enough, it likes the dormant commerce clause because it creates a free trade zone, which is very much like the kinds of property rights we're talking here. So I think that it would be a mistake under these circumstances to treat these doctrines as unrealizable by judicial means. They have been attained by judicial means. The reason why the judges flub on this one is they fundamentally do not care about the institutions, and that drives them down to rational basis, at which point they don't have to think clearly about anything, which is exactly what happened in Kelo, in Euclid, in Penn Central, and a dozen other cases that one can name without too much trouble. The second question is, well, what does this do to democratic institutions and territories? And and my view in this case is it actually has a very salutary effect. Let us think, for example, about the political reaction towards regulation on the one hand and public use on the other, and try to figure out in part why it is that people are willing to go to the mat with respect to the public use requirement, but are very happy with the regulatory system of a zoning law. Well, the reason is this. In a public use situation, you may be the guy inside the territory whose property is going to be taken. So what Kilu did is it managed to instill a sense of general insecurity in the population at large is what their government could do to them. When you're talking about the zoning situations, the politics are very different. This is the local folks saying, welcome stranger. Um, We are going to basically have a protection for fortress uh, town of Ambler or whatever it is, and the people who are going to hurt are those people who would like to come in but don't have any property interests in this case. This is a classic illustration in the case in which the democratic politics, in effect, is truncated relative to the interests involved, which, in fact, are extraterritorial. It's what he said was true with respect to the the wetlands case, which is false with respect to that one in the case, but it's certainly true here. And so the reason you want to force the pressure on is that these folks, in effect, are making a decision to wipe out the value of one, knowing full well and hoping that it will destroy the opportunities of people who do not participate in that local process. And so under those circumstances, given the imbalance of democratic politics, just as in the First Amendment cases, just as in all the stuff that you have with the Dormant Commerce Clause, you have to move as a court um, rather powerfully in these particular circumstances. So that's the kind of the, the second problem. And the third problem has to do with the sort of the issues about all this wonderful environmental protection. Obviously, the jurisdictional unit truly matters, and it would be silly for a local government to try and stop the pollution from a plant which is located at the corner of its boundary where all the pollution goes elsewhere. That's why, in effect, in most local governments and international situations, the placement of smokestacks in order to damage your neighbors is a fine art which everybody engages in and to which there ought to be some kind of really powerful and coercive response. But think of it in this particular way. I will give you a wetland case. This is a real wetland case. Um, it's a case called Kosick. I actually worked on this losing case in which the city of some city in Michigan declared this 
place in the middle of town, prime development land, a wetland, because it turned out some bulldozers had left some tracks on the thing in which water had collected. And now, in effect, the flora and fauna of the state of Michigan depended upon making sure that these tracks were never filled in. Um, and you then ask yourself, let's do it against Peter's situation. Now, what is this going to have to do with the nearby town? What is it going to have to do with the rest of the state? This is not even a glancing geese case, right? This is just a situation in which the pretext of an environmental protection was used to prevent the development in a prime development area because there were people nearby whose property values, people, something that Peter will protect, which I never would protect, uh, as such values as opposed to rights, um, in effect, they managed to work the veto. And if, in fact, you require them to pay for it, we know exactly what would happen. It was what happened in the Lucas case, the famous story. You know, they tell them, oh, my God, it's really important for the state of South Carolina not to have anybody build on this land. Fine, you now own it. And then they look and say, we own this land. Where are we going to get $500,000 to get all these wonderful benefits? Answer, real simple. We'll sell it back with the same building rights that we had before because we don't want to pay for this out of the general treasury. So that over and over again, he's right about the fact that there are jurisdictional issues but wrong about the response. It's not to weaken the takings protection. It's if for some reason you think that the responses are going to be national, then what you do is you don't think of state or local regulation. You think of national regulation designed to control national national externalities. But it seems to me that just to raise this possibility in the abstract is not in effect to explain why it exists in the particular concrete case. Now, does this mean that, in effect, I don't like democratic politics? Well, I think even that question is wrong. There's nothing that I have said which limits the scope of democratic politics. It's what shapes it. So, for example, if you take my particular view that if you want to take Mr. Kosick's land um, so that you have this wonderful wetland that you can preserve, you can now have democratic procedures go through it. Even Mr. Meller is not going to be able to say that it's not a public use to create a park in the middle of a city so that you can keep these tracks in place. And deliberate. But what's going to happen is the deliberations are going to be different. So it's not a question of being against deliberation or for deliberation. There's nothing in anything that I've ever written which explains why it is that a state is duty-bound or prohibited from initiating a taking for some kind of a public use. And that's as much democracy as we need under this point. What happens is the t pricing system is an extremely effective device to prevent ranting and raving. And I'm, I tell you, I mean, I'm involved in a case in Michigan now about a large part of land on which somebody wants to put sort of ultra-chic homes, which will win architectural prizes. And the lawyers trying to get this thing through the Planning Commission reported back to me quite bluntly. They feared for their physical safety when they got into one of these hearings. And why is that? Because the option of shutting these things down is something which you could do for just about zero price, so you might as well mobilize the troops. The moment you have to pay for it, all of a sudden different. And what's going to happen at the end? Well, I mean, I'm one of these terrible incurs. I actually built a house on a dune in Michigan and lived to tell the story. And what you see is as follows. It turns out most people would rather look at nice developments on this seashore than a bunch of vacant trees, so that the externalities are positive in these cases, not negative. And, and therefore, what I do is I, I stand by this. I, I think, in effect, that the moment we recognize the dangers of faction and prejudice and throw them into the mix, we can't have this glorified view of democratic politics. And my view, to put it in another 
way is to protect property rights, to purify the political process so that it works better than it does now. And I think if you look at the particular cases that are, certainly that I talk about in this book, I would be hard-pressed to see which of them you would want to reverse on the grounds that there is some kind of deeply seated and rooted democratic process that has to be vindicated for what is in most of these cases simply nothing short of outright confiscation. Well, thank you, Richard. And now let's open it up to questions from the audience. Um, yes, this gentleman right here. Would you please wait until the microphone comes to you, and then identify yourself and any affiliation you may have, and who your question is directed to? Uh, Gerald Schneider, Kensington, Maryland. I have one question for Dr. Epstein and one question for Dr. Byrne. Dr. Epstein, you mentioned that the Supreme Court decides questions in isolation. Don't lawyers make the case before the Supreme Court about interactions and unintended consequences? Uh, yes, you do, or you try to, but it's extremely difficult because what you have to do is to talk about a set of problems that aren't there in order to frame the ones that are there, and it's it's something that you do, but in fact, unless people think systemically, they will tend to reject it. This is not only a problem in the takings area. If you were to try to explain the expansion of product liability or tort liability, it all comes from basically selective doctrinal changes made in isolation of others. And also, so it's a problem. And secondly, a lot of lawyers tend to miss these points um, because they're more concentrated on the, on the fate of their particular case rather than worrying about long-term structure. So that there's always a cleavage between the way in which a case will be argued in a way not. I mean, I've seen, for example, in many Supreme Court cases, including some quite recent ones, uh, there's a real conflict of interest between the long-term interests of a particular position and the position of a particular litigant. And sometimes when you write amicus briefs, you basically have to argue against the party because he's interested in his pocketbook and you're interested in structure. So this is not an easy thing to deal with, and it's something to which it's easy to fall prey. And if you're in the progressive spirit, by the way, there are no such things as unintended consequences in the wonderful administrative state. Uh, Dr. Byrne, for you, uh, as a practical matter, are uh, taking decisions usually made for the general public good or to satisfy certain special interests? Taking decisions by, uh, by courts, you mean? Well, by the courts? Well, I think the courts... The court, by a zoning group. By a zoning, by a zoning group. Well, it depends what you mean by taking decisions, so that if you mean exercise of eminent domain... Uh, which is the most straightforward form of taking. Um, no changes in zoning, except okay. Or okay. Okay. See, I wouldn't call those takings, but that's 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 a longer longer answer than you want. Uh, I think that the political process is very complex, and I think that there are never uh, decisions that are made by politicians that don't reflect some sense of what their constituents want. And sometimes that, that is distillable to a public purpose, and to some extent it's infected by the interests of the individuals who make up the public. So I think it is complex. What the law requires is that it be justifiable in terms of an articulable public interest. And while that is a loose standard, and Professor Epstein is quite right, that it permits things to go forward which in an ideal world would not, uh, I don't think that that is the preponderance of it. I think the preponderance of it are that people get pretty much the land use regulations that, as a group, they want. This gentleman right here. My name is James Warrington. Personal case. 
uh, about six generations ago, part of the family farm was taken to build a right-of-way. Uh, and it was, uh, it was accomplished, and the road was used. Subsequently, within the last five years, uh, that right-of-way uh, was sold to a corporation, uh, not of this country, who now makes it a toll road. Is the time factor um, a, a, poss a, a, a important part in, in compensation or recompensation under the, um, under the taking of the road in the first place? Um, can I answer that one? Um, there's a famous case called Presault against the United States, which deals with the Rails to Trails Act. And what happened is these were railway easements, which when they ceased to be used for railway purposes, the government says, well, you know, we may spend a billion dollars putting a railway through nowhere in Vermont, so we'll use it for the time being as a bike trail. And eventually they were forced to pay compensation for the loss. The reason your case is very difficult is there's not an expiration of use, there's a transfer. And you have to therefore look at the terms of the original easement to see whether or not the transfer, A, is allowed, because some easements do not permit it, and B, if it is allowed, whether or not you can do what is called the surcharge on the easement, namely make it subject to more intensive use than the original situation. So some easements, for example, are only for gravel roads, and then somebody pays it over, the paving would be in excess and the gravel would be permissible. Nobody can answer your question of whether or not this is an illicit transfer unless they examine the deeds. And then after they examine the deeds, they have to figure out whether or not there may be something in them which may be invalid, because you always have to worry about long-term applications of things like the rule against perpetuities whenever you have anything going for five generations. My guess is at this particular point is they looked at it first and that unless you can show some kind of inconvenience with respect to the remainder of the land, wholly apart from the increased revenues that they get from the road, you're not likely to win. But then again, that's an opinion made irresponsibly because I haven't looked at the actual terms of the easement. But you, but you, you, wouldn't, you don't object to uh, use of eminent domain for a private toll road? Um, well, again, it's tricky. No. I mean, if the private toll road is going to be a toll road which will be open to all people, not only do I not object to it, I think I went exactly the opposite way. I said, God forbid that the only way you could build railroads is to have Amtrak you know, conquer the West, right? Um, you want to make sure that it's the access point that's there, and any common carrier is forced to give access to the public. And so, therefore, the phrase public use is very accurate doctrinally because you don't want to require public ownership. Right. You agree with that, right? Yes. Yeah! Pat Callahan with American Association of Small Property Owners. I'd like to address the affordable housing issue and take you up to New Jersey. Uh, the uh, state law requires that every community uh, have a certain percentage of affordable housing. And the way this seems to be playing out is two ways. If you want to open up a business and go in to set up a heating and air conditioning system, they figure out how many jobs you're going to be generating, and there are certain thresholds that you have to pay. A young fellow had come in, he was going to be setting up a, a, such a, a business, and he was going to have to pay $90,000 into some affordable housing trust fund, at which point he said, no way, I'm going to Pennsylvania. Now, the other thing that they did is, in these developments, uh, they're building McMansions, and they have to give the same kind of house 
to people who qualify for affordable housing, and they'd be at about a third of what the market value would be. Now, the interesting thing is it stays for property tax purposes at the low rate. So one of the folks, and they got a 30-year mortgage. So anyway, one of the fellows had shown up at uh, one of the public hearings on the local level and asked the question, well, what if the couple then go to school and then they get very high income because they're within commuting distance of New York, the fake the financial district, what do you do then? Does it go back up to market? They said, oh, that never happens. People don't improve themselves. So so there's a really strange situation going on up in New Jersey, and it's the local people and the local governments who are quite distressed at how the state of New Jersey is really trying to take control and usurp any rights they have on the local level. So I'd like your comment on that. Oh, boy, yes. Do you want to be there? I'll let you go first, because if you say a nice thing about this, then I have two people. <laughs> Well, I, um, I think the, I, 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 what you describe sounds very peculiar. Uh, I think not in New Jersey. No. Not in New Jersey. <laughs> not in New York. I think that there are substantial issues about how to finance affordable housing. And uh, I think that there is nothing inherently wrong with taxing new development as a, uh, as a, as a way to finance uh, well, affordable housing. You can tax. Uh, it, it's probably better to do it on some broader tax base than it is to tax new developments because it raises the cost of new development in ways that are disadvantageous. Um, I've been involved a little bit in writing about uh, some of the affordable housing initiatives in, in D.C., uh, and it's interesting the use of uh, public funds to create partial ownership interests for low-income people in what are called limited equity co-ops, which really are, in a, really are the homage that public policy pays to private property in the sense that they try to create for low-income people many of the benefits and incentives that come from property ownership, uh, but maintaining partial public, a partial of a public ownership uh, in a partnership kind of form, a condominium form, to maintain affordability over time. So affordable housing is a complicated issue. Uh, I think that you're describing initiatives which sound extraordinarily crude and create a lot of waste that doesn't, in fact, go to affordable housing. Um, Richard, try to restrain yourself. No, on this I, one. I can't restrain myself <laughs> on this one. Um, look, I mean, one of the things that this shows you about New Jersey is you may be able to run Goldman Sachs, but that doesn't mean you know the first thing about running a public institution called the state. And, and New Jersey is in dire trouble, as we know, for all sorts of reasons. And, and it's this sort of mindless, repetitive incompetence in a world of weak property rights and a, a slovenly weak court that has generated this mess. Let's go back to the test that I use and ask yourself whether or not using a business that's going to founding a business that will bring people into the community counts as a common law nuisance. I mean, you can try and work any kind of an imaginative situation, but you're just simply whistling through your nose if you believe that that is the kind of harm that you're trying to prevent. So my view is that any time you try to impose upon a particular landowner restrictions on the ability to build in order to get them to cross-subsidize some other operations, it's per se unconstitutional. Now, why is that the case going to be better? This, Peter, is not an ad hoc judgment that welcome stranger is 
is maybe worse than the other thing. I cannot think of a single case in which trying to basically take the marginal person who's trying to do something better and subject him to taxes can ever make sense. If there is a community responsibility, then what you want to do is to do it through general taxes. And what's clearly happening here is the incumbents would either be happy to drive this other fellow out, which some of them will be, or happy to tax him so long as they don't have to pay for it themselves. And so I think that in this particular case, you just have to strike every one of these statutes down. Now, how harmful is this? Well, it's harmful for another reason. Um, My daughter is a real estate developer in New York City, and so I get a daily dose of the same kinds of things from her that you see here. And the essential pattern is they're trying to create cross-subsidies out of the hide of a developer without putting any responsibility on the community that's in favor of them. So it's another one of these things welcome here. And and what they do when they do this is they never ask the following question. Is there any single regulation that we have in place that we could remove that can increase access by lowering cost? Um, And, of course, there are probably a gazillion of those things which you could attack if you were allowed to do so. And, therefore, what you find is that this simply perpetuates the cycle of, well, first what we do is we price everybody out of the market through regulation, and then we want to price them back in the market through redistribution. And what happens in a state like New Jersey is the first thing shrinks the size of the pie, and the second thing shrinks the size of the pie further, and then they wonder why they and Ohio and a bunch of other states are doing this, and so now we have to do is oppose free trade in order to shrink the pie even further. So (laughs) this is basically a world of negative sum games, and I cannot believe that the Constitution cannot be used to stop it. Um, Hans uh, Bader up there. Unbelievable what they do. Sometimes the takings clause is... Could you identify yourself, Hans? Oh, I'm Hans Bader. I'm with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Mm -hmm. We've been discussing to some extent the tension between democratic majoritarianism versus the takings clause. But doesn't the New Jersey example show that takings protections provide something of value in a way that doesn't necessarily uh, conflict with democracy at all? And that New Jersey, I thought, in large measure, these affordable housing mandates that are backfiring were the product of the New Jersey Supreme Court's Mount Laurel Doctrine, uh, which is essentially imposes by judicial fiat a mandate on all the localities in New Jersey to create more affordable housing, even though economists have found that in the decades that the that court decision has been in effect, it has not, in fact, generated any particularly high amount of affordable housing in New Jersey. So yeah. is, isn't this New Jersey example sort of an illustration that the takings clause doesn't just protect you against being preyed upon by a Democratic majority, but also by unelected judges and other unelected officials. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think what happens is when you want to sort of think about how it is judicial activism can go in reverse, this is the ultimate progressive tradition in which what we do is we accept the validity of zoning, which of course is what creates a lot of the shortages in local communities, and then we superimpose upon it further duties upon these communities, and now what you have is a situation where the disrespect from property rights in both of these things produces basically New Jersey's version of massive resistance. So when they have to first allocate land for the um, Mount Laurel set-asides in some places, they find the railroad tracks, they find the oil dumps, and what they do is they allow you to build between them if you want to do that, but they won't let you put a road in to get to it. I mean, they, you know, the subversion is complete and total. And I think what happens is that the New Jersey court just made the same mistake that I talked about in response to Ms. Callahan. 
is it faces an unsupportable zoning system, which it should have struck down, at which point you can then open things up. And then what it does is imposes another thing. Now, there's, there's one last element in this, which I think is important, and it goes to why it is I've always been deeply opposed to public education, even at the elementary school level. All of the kind of craziness with respect to this in every one of these cases is designed to make sure that certain people who don't have children don't have to fund the education of those who do. And it's the constant battle when everybody has to pay through everybody else's education through the real estate tax system, which is the dominant mode of foundation. What you do is you get communities that close themselves off to these things. When they give permissions, they'll allow you to build one-bedroom houses, not two-bedroom houses, because that second bedroom might have a child and so forth. And the only way I can see to decouple the real estate situation from the education system is to privatize education. Um, You might have vouchers, although I think those are much too intrusive in the end relative to situations. And this shows you, in effect, how a program... Remember, public education is a creature of the 1860s and 1870s. This is not a God-given right that came at the time of the Republic. When you want to run cross-subsidies in one system, it requires you to run cross-subsidies and restrictions in another. So this regulatory thing blows up. And in a state like New Jersey, where they're dumb at doing it, as opposed to places like Texas where they're a little bit better at doing it, what you do in effect is you now see a full-scale fiscal crisis, uh, which is basically represented in the way in which they cannot handle the roads. And so I would treat this to Peter. This is exhibit A. You want to find Dante's Inferno where every single rule of common law property rights is deviated and call it Eden. You can, but everybody else calls this a, a disaster. Or they call it New Jersey. No, they call <laughs> But, I mean, it's, it's, it's Ohio. I mean, you know, peace, prosperity, and progress. Eisenhower had it right. Uh, R.J.? R.J. Smith, National Center for Public Policy Research. Uh, a question for Professor Epstein. I wonder if you could comment on how, since about the early 1970s, the environmental community has managed to affect such massive regulatory takings of private lands all across the country. I mean, starting in, say, 71, 2, and 3, and President Nixon's Council on Environmental Quality, uh, they commissioned uh, Boselman and Callies and Banta to write a series of books on that issue, and they spelled it out very frankly, saying that America could never afford to pay for all the land that was necessary to set aside, or they thought was necessary to set aside, for wildlife habitat, parks, open space, recreation. And and they said, therefore, we're going to have to abandon uh, the policy of takings through condemnation and shift to a massive uh, increase in use of regulatory takings on such a huge level that people won't think twice about it. They'll just say, oh, well, that's the use of the police power. And so we ended up in situations in which uh, tree farmers in, in the southeast and the northwest can't harvest their trees because birds need them more, or landowners in Southern California have their homes burned down because they can't clear uh, fire breaks on their own land um, because of endangered species presence. I mean, when or how did we get into a situation where, say, a, a, a butterfly or a, <laughs> a butterfly or a salamander or a clam have superior rights to human beings? Um, I think the answer to that question is when I started writing in the takings, there was no voice on my side of this thing, and I was treated as a crank. Um, 
when Joe Sachs wrote his initial review of my book, do you know what the first sentence was in the unpublished version? Oh, the unpublished version. Like a shaggy dog, this book will tempt every passerby to kick it a give it a kick. It is devoid of logic, theory, and history. It just went on and on. And the guy did not know what he was talking about. Um, but I think the answer is, what we now see is the explanation is Bosselman got it right. If you in fact to have a situation in which the basic point is that you're paying a zero price, the demand curve will go right down to the x-axis and you'll have a hell of a lot of stuff that's going to be taken. And what the takings clause does is it tries to get into some kind of equilibrium by putting a price which is positive, which I think is all to the good. What The way this happened intellectually was what I call sort of academic deconstruction of words. That is, I know what a nuisance is. When Frank Michaelman wrote his great article, he didn't know what a nuisance was, so he kept on putting the word nuisance in quotations, Mark, because he didn't know the difference between causing a harm and giving a benefit. And so essentially what happened is the common law structures of entitlement was decomposed on the analytical level, and then the case was simply one of, of pure policy, and essentially we now know that every intangible good which you can't measure is always worth more than every tangible good that you can measure. And my view about it is that what we want to encourage as a responsible environmentalist is equimarginalism. That is, you'd like to have your last public dollar that is spent on environment worth as much as it is spent on any alternative use. And that is not the policy of the environmental position. That's always the preferential situation. And the way you will get that with respect to wetlands, with respect to habitats, right, is in effect to have the purchase. Now, maybe I've heard you wrong, Mr. Smith, but I assume that you're a champion of as much pollution as you can generate on the grounds of private property. Is that correct? What? No, I mean, you understood the difference. You did not make a single protest against things like the Clean Air Act and so forth. And if you did protest those, it was not because the end was illegitimate. It was because the design of the system was manifestly incompetent, which in some instances it is. So I, I think it's the conceptual stuff which was used by the movement, which was the winning combination, coupled with the fact that there was no responsible opposition out there by anybody who can say anything. And now the situation is an equipoise, and the reason it hasn't moved is if you're the environmental guys, you're playing defense now, and even if the majority of sentiment is against you, you're still going to be able to hold out given the labyrinth of the committee structures that we have. And uh, this is going to be a long battle, and my view in the end is that as the costs become higher, they will lose, not because the courts will change, but because slowly there will be a tamping down on the amount of activities that the legislatures will be able to get through politically. But the political stuff will not you get you back to the equal marginal equilibrium. It will just move you a little bit up from the x-axis. Peter, uh, do you agree? No. <laughs> well, I think the main difference is that it became possible to understand a broader range of harms and that the... Uh, the uh, understanding of the ecological basis uh, of of life and many of the uncertainties that come from the study of that created a widespread anxiety about what we do and what are the harms that result from what we do. And that justified a, uh, a broad expansion of regulation of activities to try to maintain the health of the uh, of the world that we live in. And in that process, uh, there are going to be things that are done well and things that are done poorly. And I think it's perfectly fair to take them apart one by one and talk about where the regulations have gone off the rails, where they're based on false assumptions, either ethical or scientific. But to basically suggest that the 
um, that uh, uh, conceptualization of property rights is going to reset everything in a way that is going to be optimal seems to me to be a, a mystical perception. No, I, I disagree with that as emphatically as possible. Let me just take the point that he started with, which is our greater knowledge allows you to talk about the interconnections between various things. That's exactly right. It also allows you to demonstrate the non-interconnection when some of those things don't exist. So if you could put dyes in the middle of Michigan and they never reach the various kind of inlet, you can't say that filling this particular thing has caused the harm. There's nothing about knowledge which says that interconnectedness is always going to take place. Sometimes it will show that certain systems can be separated, and you can demonstrate that by these techniques. The second thing is if you have that great knowledge, it's a a stronger argument for using the condemnation power. Because if we know exactly where this thing is breaking down, then in effect we have enough knowledge to decide, oh, we want to keep this ecosystem going. This is what we have to condemn. This is what we have to do. If you know enough to regulate, you know enough to condemn. And so the only question is, you know enough to condemn, i.e. with payment. And once you know that, then the techniques that he's talking about do not switch the balance between regulation on the one hand and takings on the other. What they simply do is direct the way in which you decide to regulate with compensation where you're not dealing with common law nuisances. The old rules work perfectly well with the new information. If they're nuisances that you miss that you can stop, you stop them. If they're non-nuisances that you want to stop, you better justify the cause and do it. So this is a, the knowledge point is a complete red herring relative to the actual implementation of any of these schemes. Uh, Richard, I want to pose the final question to you. Your subtitle is How to Revive Constitutional Protection for Private Property. And that raises profoundly difficult uh, problems when you're in the middle of the demise that we're in right now, in particular timing problems, writing a regulatory takings statute, for example. Uh, Oregon's Prop 37 attempted that. Arizona has a proposition right now that is still in place. The Oregon statute was removed. How do you address the timing issue with respect to past Uh, takings, future takings under past statutes and the like? Well, I'm going to give you an answer which is, I think, correct, but nonetheless highly disappointing. I believe in the division of labor. Um, I'm an academic. What I don't know about the Arizona legislature or the Oregon is everything there is to know about the Oregon legislature or the Arizona legislature. And one of the things that I will not let myself get messed up in when I try to put forward the grand vision of this stuff is talking about compromises which may make sense relative to the status quo, but which themselves are intellectually vulnerable. My view about it is there are folks out there in the field who can do these things far better than I and that they are the ones to whom you ought to address that question. What I'm trying to do is to hammer as hard as I can because I think the kinds of justifications that have been put forward by Peter and so forth are, in a word, intellectually bankrupt by the very standards of social welfare that they're advanced. And that was the point that I started with. I am not a possessive individualist who thinks that one person could be able to run roughshod over the rest of the world by doing what he wants with what is owned. But if you take the most sophisticated techniques of social welfare measurement, you will never, ever let yourself get to a set of techniques that are now made available to the government. The public choice issues are too large, and all the knowledge issues that you can identify can, in fact, 
fact be incorporated into the older scheme. What, the thing to understand about a coherent system of property rights of the kind that I'm talking about, in which there is give for forced exchanges with mutual advantage, is it is not something which is dependent upon technology. You change the technology, you change the trades. It's roughly like saying that the doctrine of contract depends upon there being John Dewey's small guys. No, you change from one environment to another. You start selling computer ships instead of plowshares. Um, these things are perfectly timeless and invariant, and all the efforts to try to relativize it, it seems to be a mistake. And so my answer is these are very important questions. If I'm hired or even advised in some case, I'll give a strategic judgment on it. But in an academic book, I don't want to clutter it with any of this stuff because it just gets you away from the central message. Okay. Uh, the book is av- <laughs> the book is available uh, outside at a discount. Uh, do uh, get a copy and have Richard sign it. And uh, let's have a warm round of applause for us. Good to see you again.